Chapter Seventeen, Part One, of Volume the Second, of a Popular History of France from the Earliest Times. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. Volume Two of a Popular History of France from the Earliest Times by François Guizot. Translated by Robert Black. Chapter Seventeen: The Crusades, Their Decline and End, Part One. In the month of August, ten ninety-nine, the Crusade, to judge by appearances, had attained its object. Jerusalem was in the hands of the Christians, and they had set up in it a king, the most pious and most disinterested of the Crusaders. Close to this ancient kingdom were growing up likewise in the two chief cities of Syria and Mesopotamia, Antioch and Edessa, two Christian principalities, in the possession of two crusader chiefs, Bohemond and Baldwin. A third Christian principality was on the point of getting founded at the foot of Libanus, at Tripolis, for the advantage of another crusader, Bertrand, eldest son of Count Raymond of Toulouse. The conquest of Syria and Palestine seemed accomplished in the name of the faith, and by the armies of Christian Europe, and the conquerors calculated so surely upon their fixture, that during his reign, short as it was, for he was elected king July twenty-third, 1099, and died July the 18th, 1100, aged only forty years. Godfrey de Bouillon caused to be drawn up and published, under the title of Assizes of Jerusalem, a code of laws, which transferred to Asia the customs and traditions of the feudal system, just as they existed in France, at the moment of his departure from the Holy Land. Forty-six years afterwards, in 1145, the Mussulmans, under the leadership of Zangi, Sultan of Aleppo and of Mosul, had retaken Edessa. Forty-two years after that, in 1187, Saladin, Salah el-Edun, Sultan of Egypt and of Syria, had put an end to the Christian kingdom of Jerusalem. And only seven years later, in 1194, Richard Coeur de Lion, King of England, after the most heroic exploits in Palestine, on arriving in sight of Jerusalem, retreated in despair, covering his eyes with his shield, and saying that he was not worthy to look upon the city, which he was not in a condition to conquer. When he re-embarked at St. Jean d'Acre, casting a last glance and stretching out his arms towards the coast, he cried, Most holy land, I command thee to the care of the Almighty, and may he grant me long life enough to return hither, and deliver thee from the yoke of the infidels. A century had not yet rolled by since the triumph of the first crusaders, and the dominion they had acquired by conquest in the Holy Land had become, even in the eyes of their most valiant and most powerful successors, an impossibility. Nevertheless, repeated efforts and glory, and even victories, were not then, and were not to be still later. Unknown amongst the Christians, in their struggle against the Mussulmans, for the possession of the Holy Land. 
in the space of a hundred and seventy-one years, from the coronation of Godfrey de Bouillon as king of Jerusalem, in 1099, to the death of St. Louis, wearing the cross before Tunis, in 1270, seven grand crusades were undertaken, with the same design, by the greatest sovereigns of Christian Europe, the kings of France and England, the emperors of Germany, the kings of Denmark, and princes of Italy, successively engaged therein. And they all failed. It were neither right nor desirable to make long pause over the recital of their attempts and their reverses, for it is the history of France, and not a general history of the Crusades, which is here related. But it was in France, by the French people, and under French chiefs, that the Crusades were begun, and it was with St. Louis, dying before Tunis, beneath the banner of the cross, that they came to an end. They revived in the history of Europe the glorious name of Gesta Dei per Francos, God's works by French hands, and they have a right to keep, in the history of France, the place they really occupied. During a reign of twenty-nine years, Louis the Sixth, called the Fat, son of Philip the First, did not trouble himself about the East or the Crusades, at that time in all their fame and renown. Being rather a man of sense than an enthusiast in the cause either of piety or glory, he gave all his attention to the establishment of some order, justice, and royal authority in his as yet far from extensive kingdom. A tragic incident, however, gave the crusade chief place in the thoughts and life of his son, Louis the Seven, called the Young, who succeeded him in 1137. He got himself rashly embroiled, in 1142, in a quarrel with Pope Innocent II, on the subject of the election of the Archbishop of Bourges. The Pope and the King had each a different candidate for the seat. The King is a child, said the Pope, he must get schooling, and be kept from learning bad habits. Never, so long as I live, said the king, shall Peter de la Chartre, the pope's candidate, enter the city of Bourges. The chapter of Bourges, thinking as the pope thought, elected Peter de la Chartre, and Theobald II, Count of Champagne, took sides for the archbishop-elect. Mind your own business, said the king to him. Your dominions are large enough to occupy you, and leave me to govern my own as I have in mind. Theobald persisted in backing the elective pope and chapter. The pope excommunicated the king. The king declared war against the Count of Champagne, and went and besieged Vitry. Nearly all the town was built of wood, and the besiegers set fire to it. The besieged fled for refuge to a church, in which they were infested, and the fire reached the church, which was entirely consumed, together with the thirteen hundred inhabitants, men, women, and children, who had retreated thither. This disaster made a great stir. St. Bernard, abbot of Clairvaux, and the leading ecclesiastical authority of the age, took the part of Count Theobald. King Louis felt a lively sorrow and sincere repentance. Soon afterwards it became known, in the West, that the affairs of the Christians were going ill in the East, 
that the town of Edessa had been retaken by the Turks, and all its inhabitants massacred. The kingdom of Jerusalem, too, was in danger. Great was the emotion in Europe, and the cry of the crusade was heard once more. Louis the Young, to appease his troubled conscience, and to get reconciled with the Pope, to say nothing of sympathy for the national movement, assembled the grandees, like and ecclesiastical, of the kingdom, to deliberate upon the matter. Deliberation was more prolonged, more frequently repeated, and more indecisive than it had been at the time of the First Crusade. Three grand assemblies met, the first in 1145 at Bourges, the second in 1146 at Vetselai in Nivernese, and the third in 1147 at Etampes, all three being called to investigate the expediency of a new crusade and of the king's participation in the enterprise. Not only was the question seriously discussed, but extremely diverse opinions were expressed, both amongst the rank and file of those assemblies, and amongst their most illustrious members. There were two men whose talents and fame made them conspicuous above all, Sugar, abbot of Saint-Denis, the intimate and able adviser of the wise king, Louis the Fat, and Saint Bernard, abbot of Clairvaux, the most eloquent, most influential, and most piously disinterested amongst the Christians of his age. Though both were ecclesiastics, these two great men were, touching the second crusade, of opposite opinions. Let none suppose, says Sugar's biographer and confidant, William, monk of Saint-Denis, that it was at his instance, or by his counsel, that the king undertook the voyage to the Holy Land. Although the success of it was other than had been expected, this prince was influenced only by pious wishes and zeal for the service of God. As for Sugar, ever far-seeing and only too well able to read the future, not only did he not suggest to the monarch any such design, but he disapproved of it so soon as it was mentioned to him. The truth of it is, that after having vainly striven to nip it in the bud, and being unable to put a check upon the king's zeal, he thought it wise, either for fear of wounding the king's piety, or of uselessly incurring the wrath of the partisans of the enterprise, to yield to the times. As for St. Bernard, at the first of the three assemblies, at Bourges, whether it were that his mind was not yet made up, or that he desired to cover himself with greater glory, he advised the king to undertake nothing, without having previously consulted the Holy See. But when Pope Eugenius III, so far from hesitating, had warmly solicited the aid of the Christians against the infidels, St. Bernard, at the Second Assembly, at Vetselai, gave free vent to his feelings and his eloquence. After having read the Pope's letters, If ye were told, said he, that an enemy had attacked your castles, your cities, and your lands, had ravished your wives and your daughters, and had profaned your temples, which of you would not fly to arms? Well, all those evils, and evils still greater, have come upon your brethren, 
upon the family of Christ, which is your own. Why tarry ye, then, to repair so many wrongs, to avenge so many insults? Christian warriors, he who gave his life for you, to-day demandeth yours. Illustrious knights, noble defenders of the cross, call to mind the example of your fathers, who conquered Jerusalem, and whose names are written in heaven. The living God has charged me to tell unto you that he will punish those who shall not have defended him against his enemies. Fly to arms and let Christendom re-echo with the words of the prophet. Bow to him who dieth not his sword with blood. At this fervent address the assembly rang with the shout of the first crusade. God willeth it, God willeth it. The king, kneeling before St. Bernard, received from his hands the cross. The queen, Eleanor of Aquitaine, assumed it like her husband. Nearly all the barons present followed their example. St. Bernard tore up his garments into crosses for distribution, and on leaving the assembly he scored the country places, everywhere preaching and persuading the people. The villages and castles are deserted, he wrote to the Pope. There is none to be seen save widows and orphans whose husbands and fathers are alive. Nor did he confine himself to France. He crossed into Germany and preached the crusade all along the Rhine. The Emperor, Conrad III, showed great hesitation. The Empire was sorely troubled, he said, and had need of its head. Be of a good cheer, replied St. Bernard. So long as you defend his heritage, God himself will take the burden of defending yours. One day in December, 1146, he was celebrating Mass at Spire, in presence of the Emperor and a great number of German princes. Suddenly he passed from the regular service to the subject of the crusade, and transported his audience to the Last Judgment, in the presence of all the nations of the earth summoned together, and Jesus Christ bearing his cross, and reproaching the Emperor with ingratitude. Conrad was deeply moved, and interrupted the preacher by crying out, I know what I owe to Jesus Christ, and I swear to go whither it pleases him to call me. The attraction became general, and Germany, like France, took up the cross. St. Bernard returned to France. The ardor there had cooled a little during his absence. The results of his trip in Germany were being waited for, and it was known that, on being eagerly pressed to put himself at the head of the crusaders, and take the command of the whole expedition, he had formally refused. His enthusiasm and his devotion, sincere and deep as they were, did not, in this case, extinguish common sense, and he had not forgotten the melancholy experiences of Peter the Hermit. In support of his refusal he claimed the intervention of Pope Eugenius III. Who am I, he wrote to him, that I should form a camp and march at the head of an army? What can be more alien to my calling, even if I lacked not the strength and the ability? I need not tell you all this, for you know it perfectly. I conjure you by the charity you owe me. Deliver me not over thus to the humors of men. 
The Pope came to France, and the Third Grand Assembly met at Etampes in February 1147. The presence of St. Bernard rekindled zeal, but foresight began to penetrate men's minds. Instead of insisting upon his being the chief of the crusade, attention was given to preparations for the expedition. The points were indicated at which the crusaders should form an injunction, and the directions in which they would have to move, and inquiry was made as to what measures should be taken, and what persons should be selected for the government of France during the king's absence. Sir, said St. Bernard, after having come to an understanding, upon the subject with the principal members of the assembly, at the same time pointing to Sugar and the Count of Nivers. Here be two swords, and it suffices. The Count de Nivers peremptorily refused the honour done him. He was resolved, he said, to enter the order of St. Bruno, as indeed he did. Sugar also refused at first, considering the dignity offered him a burden, rather than an honour. Wise and clear-sighted by nature, he had learned in the reign of Louis the Fat to know the requirements and the difficulties of government. He consented to accept, says his biographer, only when he was at last forced to it by Pope Eugenius, who was present at the king's departure, and whom it was neither permissible nor possible for him to resist. It was agreed that the French crusaders should form a junction at Metz, under the command of King Louis, and the Germans at Ratisbon, under that of the Emperor Conrad, and that the two armies should successively repair by land to Constantinople, whence they would cross into Asia. Having each a strength, it is said, of one hundred thousand men, they marched by Germany and the lower Danube, at an interval of two months between them, without committing irregularities, and without meeting obstacles so serious as those of the first crusade, but still much incommodate, and subjected to great hardships in the countries they traversed. The Emperor Conrad and the Germans first, and then King Louis and the French, arrived at Constantinople in the course of the summer of 1117. Manuel Comenus, grandson of Alexis Comenus, was reigning there, and he behaved towards the crusaders, with the same mixture of caresses and malevolence, promises and perfidy, as had distinguished his grandfather. There is no ill turn he did not do them, says the historian Nicetas, himself a Greek. Conrad was the first to cross into Asia Minor, and whether it were unskilfulness or treason, the guides with whom he had been supplied by Manuel Comenus led him so badly that on the 28th of October, 1147, he was surprised and shockingly beaten by the Turks near Ionicum. An utter distrust of Greeks grew up amongst the French, who had not yet left Constantinople, and some of their chiefs, and even one of their prelates, the Bishop of Langres, proposed to make without further delay an end of it with its emperor and empire, so treacherously hostile, and to take Constantinople in order to march more securely upon Jerusalem. But King Louis and the majority of his knights turned a deaf ear. We be come forth, said they, to expiate our own sins, 
not to punish the crimes of the Greeks. When we took up the cross, God did not put into our hands the sword of his justice, and they in their turn crossed over into Asia Minor. There they found the Germans, beaten and dispersed, and Conrad himself wounded and so discouraged, that instead of pursuing his way by land with the French, he returned to Constantinople to go thence by sea to Palestine. Louis and his army continued their march across Asia Minor, and gained in Phrygia, at the passage of the river Meander, so brilliant a victory over the Turks, that if such men, says the historian Nicetas, abstain from taking Constantinople, one cannot but admire their moderation and forbearance. End of chapter 17, part 1